Welcome to the podcast, Leadership Forum, a conversation with leaders who serve the public good. My name is Trevor Brown, and I'm privileged to serve as Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University, where we aspire to fulfill a simple phrase that Senator John Glenn used to describe what we do, inspire citizenship and develop leadership. I also have the honor of serving as the host of this conversation series. So welcome to a thoughtful and reflective conversation about leadership. I'm joined today by Kathy Sullivan, a distinguished scientist and public servant who's served in multiple roles inside and outside of government, including chief scientist of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, otherwise known as NOAA, executive director of COSI here in Columbus, founding director of the Battelle Center for Science and Public Policy at what is now the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at Ohio State, undersecretary of commerce for oceans and atmosphere, administrator of NOAA, and recently the Charles A. Lindbergh Chair of Aerospace History at the Smithsonian's Air and Space Museum. Kathy is a Swiss army knife. In addition to all the administrative and leadership roles I just mentioned, she's an accomplished pilot, an oceanographer who sailed the seas, an astronaut who was the first woman to walk in space, and then in a later shuttle mission helped deploy the Hubble telescope. And most recently, she became the first woman to dive to the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench, the deepest parts of the Earth's oceans. As a result of all this intrepid exploration, she has three world records, the first woman to reach Challenger Deep, the first person to visit space and the deepest point on Earth, and the greatest vertical extent traveled by an individual within the Earth's exosphere. Kathy, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining me for a conversation about leadership in the public sector. Pleasure to be with you today, Trevor. Well, just before we, we get into the meat of this, I've got to know, does, does your world record, that last one, does that make, how do you say that? Are you the most vertically traveled? And, and how do you put that on a resume? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of a trick for the resume. You know, I, uh, I took a note from that great old classic song, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. And so, well, beautiful has three syllables, vertical has three syllables. So I have simplified that to the, mo the most vertical person in the world. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine there, well, there would only be the one most vertical, but I can't imagine there are other people who say how vertical they are. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but Buzz Aldrin might. He's also been pretty deep in the ocean and, and all the way to the moon, which of okay. course I cannot equal. You can't, you can't do that. Well, let's, let's start by, by talking about leadership broadly um, and the context of where it takes place. You, you have served in so many different roles um, and in different contexts as a, as a result. What are some just basic leadership lessons that, that you would highlight over all those, those sort of different roles? Well, you know, I think the first one that comes to mind, and I think it's central to this whole discussion, is uh, that leadership is not a title. It, it is a kind of a set of behaviors that, in my experience, are they're needed at every level of any effort or organization. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, I learned that in a couple of ways as a very junior graduate student going out to sea. So I you know, have really kind of no standing on a ship that has a captain and a first mate and a chief scientist, but a responsibility for helping the entire science program succeed and, and ensuring that the work I was charged with doing got done. And, you know, you, you can't succeed at either of those things if you're just sitting back waiting for someone to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So keeping a, an expansive 
comprehensive mental picture of what's going on. I would call that situational awareness, maintaining a high level of situational awareness of all the moving parts and pieces of the thing you're involved in, not just your bits. Um, sussing out the people around you, you what's motivating them, what do they need, how are they working, so you can understand how to help motivate them and work with them effectively in a, in a direction. Uh, and, and then applying initiatives. So as I say, you're not waiting for someone to just always tell you, you what to do now or what you now may do, but you're thinking, ahead, you're proposing, you're, you're joining in the what do we do now conversation and helping to shape it. That's kind of a, a first element of leading. It's just not being passive, yeah. no matter what the title is, no matter, not only no matter what the title is, but you know, kind of no matter what you think of yourself. I mean, you may not think, well, I'm not supposed to be leading here. Uh, but the more everybody brings some of those leadership elements to the table in any enterprise, the better off the enterprise will be. Now, it may sometimes bump up against egos or people who do cling to titles. And, and since they have one and you don't, you, you, know, you might get a little bit of brusque or backlash from them. Uh, but don't let that deter you in the long run. So I, I'm going to break this question into a couple parts, but just to preview where I hope to go. Um, I want to start by thinking about your your rise in your career. Um, you know, there's a sort of an ascent as you're taking on new roles, and those roles are moving up in organizations. You were chief scientist of NOAA, and then you ultimately became the administrator. Um, and, and wanting you to reflect on both the journey up and what were some leadership skills that helped move you forward. And then when you got to serve in kind of the apex in a leadership role, things that you then wanted to change as a result of like, okay, now I'm in charge here, or not in charge, but I have some ability to influence the context so that other people can be their best selves. And, and then I'll start by, we've talked before this about your time at NASA um, and what that was like as a woman in a very male dominated environment. What, what was that like? And what were some of the things you had to do to succeed in that environment where you were again, a, a newbie, so to speak, um, and then what would be some things you'd like to change uh, if you had the opportunity? Yeah, you know, there were two dimensions to my being new when I joined NASA. Uh, and I actually think that the second one that I'm going to mention had was more of a factor than the first one. So, yes, one of the first six women to join NASA's astronaut corps back in 1978 uh, at a time where there were not many women in any of the technical roles. They were certainly around in administrative roles and some medical and research roles, but, you know, flight director that runs mission control or, you know, astronaut. Yeah. I mean, there were not a, really not even many women at the sitting in the main floor of mission control as the, you know, flight controller in charge. So, you know, that world had, uh, it had not seen women in those roles. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it had, seen people called astronauts, but they never looked like me. Uh, and everyone who did look like me fit in wife, girlfriend, mother, mm -hmm. sweetheart kind of niche, not in peer, uh, but much not in peer, much less in leader. So there were, you know, there was certainly some of that of how did other, how did the men that we were now working among um, welcome us or not welcome us. By and large, they did welcome us, and it may have been because we came in with the astronaut title, and they they had long learned that astronauts have a standing that you don't get to challenge, sweetheart. So whatever skepticism they may have had that, yeah, but I never saw one that looked like you, I think we got a at least a momentary window of 
but I'd better watch and see rather than I just better go on the attack. Um, but the second newbie bit for me was I was 26 years old and straight out of grad school. Yeah. I had never been in a complex organization and I'd never been, I mean, the most complex thing I had been in and on was a research ship at sea, which is a much tinier microcosm. Uh, and I, you know, I understood my role as responsible for my work and as a member of the scientific party. And I just, by instinct, I think, found my way to building constructive relationships with the members of the crew yeah. because, you know, they know how the ship runs and works and I know what we're trying to do. And we've got to bring the two of those together to succeed at what we're out for here. So I'd learned that bit of a lesson, but taking it to the next level up and into a very different culture where I would, I was not just a solo agent responsible for my work. It was a, a broader matrix and web of things I was responsible for. Uh, in my early astronaut years, I was often working as the proxy or representative for a member of a flight crew. So, you know, the astronauts are going to fly, fly this next flight is busy training and getting ready. So they can't be the ones going to all these planning meetings. We will do that for them and represent their needs and their views. Uh, and I had a lot to learn. I would, I would highlight two things. I had a lot to learn about that initiative point that I mentioned about uh, really, really owning the fact that I had that role uh, and had that standing as a representative of the astronaut corps, um, getting to where I believe that if I said I need something, anybody would do it because, yeah. uh, you know, I just women ask for things. They don't declare that they need it and expect it gets done. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to shift gears into being a leader. <clears throat> To shift gears into being a leader, I, I needed to overcome that. Yeah. You know, I always yeah. have to ask, always have to hope. Uh, I can't count on you to be committed to the same purpose. And I can't count on you to accept the standing I have and just do it because I said. Uh, that was a big lesson. And then the culture was also very different. Is much more, uh, especially within the astronaut office, uh, much more competitive culture. Mm -hmm. So it was both sort of joshing and and wire brushing, teasing competition to spur each other on to, to our best. Uh, but I also read a lot of it. Maybe I read too much of it as kind of, you know, a friendly opponent trying to take you out of your game or put you off your game. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to mature into a, an intern, an inner strength and, and continually check my thinking on that. You know, what is the purpose of this competitive dynamic is what's the balance of constructive and genuinely, you're competitive. Uh, and that, that was another big learning curve. But again, straight out of grad school, this was never seen this culture, never been in such a complex organization, um, had never had to figure out what I call the chessboard, who's who in this enterprise and who's who's doing what. If, if something needs done, who's the person that can do it? Technically, who's the person can improve it? And you know, in the sea of people, they're always around these large gatherings. Uh, so I, I, it's like knowing how each piece on the chessboard moves and the importance of knowing that about the, the organizational units and the individuals that are around you so that you can be both effective and efficient at helping progress happen. So that's great. Thanks for, for sharing that. And by the way, I just I love talking to people in technical fields who use the term wire brushing. Um, I immediately <laughs> can feel it. 
on my neck yeah. in my yeah yeah it's so, just that you know that that challenging what do you mean you don't know how do you know yeah uh yeah, yeah and mm -hmm. there's you know many people there do hold the mindset that if if you don't have i i'm testing the strength of your convictions right and if they're not if you're not really confident in how sound your proposal or viewpoint or whatever is then why should i bank on you and so that's kind of the the test that they're laying out for you oftentimes so fast forward some years after that 26-year-old experience of walking into that highly competitive uh, environment. When, when you were, say, you know, the administrator at NOAA, what, what did you, did you approach that differently as a result of that NASA experience? Where you, you know, what, what were some things you wanted to, to change about a leadership context? I, really, I did approach it quite differently. I, I came through my NASA experience uh, I think with some deeper understanding of what the intentions and effects of that competitive, challenging leadership style were, but also convinced of two other points. And one was that it was not the only way to achieve excellence yeah. and that it, it, as a cultural overlay and method, it, it, I don't think it served me as well. I would say I, I would say NASA didn't get all the very best out of me it could have because there was a lot more of, of my creative circuits that I would say I kind of shut down and edited out to just fit the mold and you yeah. know, perform in the way, behave and perform in the way that was expected. Um, and so when I got finally the chance to you know, lead a Navy unit, lead uh, NOAA, uh, that was the premise I wanted the chance to really try out and see. And so we set very high expectations we were crisp and candid with each other about, well, that worked or it didn't. Uh, we, we made that, we didn't. Um, I used a lot of we and not, you know, I and you, yeah. us and them. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. are in this together. We are committed to this purpose together. That didn't work. Uh, why didn't it work? Let's think it through. What can we fix? Trevor, this was yours to do. You've got some ideas now, you know, go get it done. Mm -hmm. Go you know, get, get us back on course, fix what you can. Um, but, and I was surrounded with a couple of 50 year olds, but a lot of 30 and early 40 year olds uh, and a very different mix of women and African-Americans than I had had around me in the astronaut corps. Uh, and, you know, they, they thrived under that. They absolutely thrived. They blossomed. I guarantee the young professional women in particular uh, grew stronger and bl blossomed more rapidly uh, because of the sunlight and water that was uh, being drizzled on them than they would have if they were just being uh, accosted and challenged all the time. So earlier you described that feeling um, of feeling like you needed to ask um, and you know seek permission before executing that initiative that came later. What have you done as, a, or have you tried as a leader to try and create that context in which people feel confident to say, yeah, I've got this. I, I can take this. Kathy trusts me. What can you do as a leader to try and sort of flip that so that people don't feel shell-shocked and scared and like they got to beg permission for everything? Well, I think what you just said of, I know she trusts, I know she believes in me and believes I can do this, part one. Yeah. But part two, really the thing I, I think took me the longest to ripen into was believing in my own standing. Uh, again, that 
yeah, but if I, you know, here's this guy who's more senior to me or, or more seasoned than I am, greater longevity, or works in a different division. And if I go over to them and say, you know, I need, I need so-and-so, well, why isn't he just going to say, that's your problem? Yeah. Like that doesn't have any bearing on what I need to do. You know, where, where, how to develop that understanding of my own role and standing and really like deeply own it uh, and gain progressively gain confidence that I actually could say, okay, we're doing this and I need that. I need that. I need that. And say, Trevor, uh, I need you to do this. And, and the answer would be, yeah, I got it. Instead of who the heck are you? Uh, and again, with those young professional women that I mentioned in the NOAA context, uh, I, I watched many of them also have to, well, also have the opportunity to grow a bit through that. Yeah. Uh, they were merit, They were going off to pull information and project pieces together in the name of the administrator of NOAA. And they had, I could watch them have some of the same wrestling match. Well, Kathy, I know if you asked them, they would do it, but I'm just me. Right. Yeah, but you, you are the emissary of this yeah. office. You yeah. go with the power of this office. You need to know that and believe that. And yeah, you know, if you meet someone who just tells you to buzz off, uh, we have ways to fix that because that's the wrong answer. Right. Yeah. Let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so you've led in a lot of environments uh, where you are overseeing or engaged in a sort of technical scientific activity, and then you're providing that information to decision makers, often politically elected officials, even though you at that moment may have been politically appointed, you're still in that more objective right. neutral role. I mean, in this current environment, you know, we say it's a fact-free world, but we're, we're in a kind of augmented sense of what has always been true in which the nature of technical work in the government is it sits in a political environment. Um, and, and sometimes you have to pass on or provide information to decision makers that doesn't fit their political calculus. Um, and so I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about what are the skills and abilities required as a leader in that context to, to try and engage um, a political official who either doesn't believe what you, you know, just doesn't believe it or, or just doesn't fit their political um, expectations? Well, first, let me point out that this dynamic applies just as much in the corporate world where a yeah. you know, powerful CEO who doesn't want to hear evidence that this isn't going to work, you know, financially or technically or, or from a legal point of view. Um, and it will always be a bit dependent on the personalities involved, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think there's no way to get around the fact that it will challenge your courage and your commitment, uh, your commitment to the integrity of your purpose and the integrity of data uh, and your own ethics, uh, your own moral values. The, um, you know, as you asked that question, Trevor, the most, I think both illustrative and to me amusing example I encountered of that was back when I was NOAA chief scientist, uh, President uh, Bill Clinton was president, Al Gore was vice president. And uh, Gore had this idea to launch what may have been sort of the first crowdsourced science program. He envisioned kids around the world taking measurements in their local environment, the wind or the temperature or whatever it might be, and uploading them all, you know, put them in a computer where they would upload into a database, not just to be amused by the collection of kid data, but if you got enough measurements from enough places, uh, there'd actually be scientific value in the data. 
We, we should pause for a minute and point out how bold this is. This is for, for those, this is the 1990s pre-iPhone, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, a laptop was still the size and weight of a, at least a hefty briefcase, if not right. a small suitcase. So right. all of that. Um, and I got roped onto the team. Yeah, I had educational background as well at that point and blah, blah, blah. And so I spent a lot of time working with the, his office staff uh, and other agency people. And here's the quandaries that we came up with. He wants, he envisions children all around the globe making these measurements and uploading them electronically into a database. Uh, and I pointed out to his staff that uh, there, there was a, a dichotomy that had to be resolved here. There was a real either or. Uh, either we could start out globally with kids everywhere, in which case in remote parts of Africa or Asia, some of those kids would be working pencil and paper and maybe mailing or telegraphing the results in. Hmm. Or you could start digitally in the places where that was possible. And, and in either case, you'd be trying to use that starting step as an incentive to the, the governments to you know, go digital and get more kids involved. And they kept saying, no, he said he wants both. I said, yeah, I know he said he wants both. And, and we will give him both. Like, if not eventually, but not like day one. Nope, he wants both. We got to give him both day one. And we went around that circle. I don't, I don't even know how many times. And, you know, my metaphor here, Trevor, would be if someone told you walk across the street and you realized for some reason it mattered whether you stepped first with your left or right foot, you'd ask them, I will get across the street. I will do what you need done. Do, do, does it matter to you if I start left or right foot? Because right. I got to start with one. Otherwise, right. I'm hopping across the tree. Right. Uh, and they were just not interested in the which foot first discussion. <laughs> uh, and, and so I finally said, look. And again, I had a presidentially appointed standing. They were his staff. You could quibble over who had rank there. Um, but I finally said, look, look, you guys scheduled a meeting. I'll tell him. He can, you know, he can come at me and at least we'll get some discussion around how to break this quandary. I got event soon after they were pulled off to some other assignments and I never really saw that all the way through. So I, I don't know how the last internal, they didn't ever need to schedule that meeting. Someone uh -huh. must have, uh, his staff must have finally saddled up and you know, <laughs> broken, broken the code with him. And he was, Gore was not the kind of guy I, to behead people. I mean, a leader in that position has to have a clear view uh, kind of like Steve Jobs, you know, get people to suspend disbelief a little bit, push them beyond what you can see something that's possible that they don't see yet. Yeah. You don't want to give in easily to, okay, we'll take whatever you can do. But on the other end, you've got to be listening and looking for some room for where is there really an issue here that needs to tweak what I had in mind and, and endorse someone on your team to help take that forward. So I'm, I worried for a while that I you know, maybe they ratted me out to the vice president. I was now persona non grata, but I have this lovely letter on my wall from the vice president thanking me for my contributions to the program. So uh, apparently it was all okay. So where is that, where is that commitment? There, I, I've been in lots of organizational settings where there are yes people that, that just yeah. want, they don't want to, and part of it's a, that they don't, it's the courage component. But it's also because maybe they lack confidence in the, re the reality of the world that they operate in, right? It goes back to your 26-year-old story. But for you, I get the sense that that sort of inherent understanding of there are limits to what is possible 
and I'm going to do everything I can to get to the frontier, but, but there's this fundamental limits. Where, where does that come from for you? I, I think for me, it comes out of my astronaut experience and training because, you know, that there's not a lot that's really very arguable when things are moving at 17,500 miles an hour, right? I mean, if, if someone's, if you're having a pre-flight debate and someone's taking a position that boils down to two plus two is five, yeah, we're not going to go forward on the basis of two plus two is five. And in that world, you know, there were two, they're not really rituals, but two methods uh, commonly used that would kind of sweat that out of anybody. And one was, if you, Trevor, if you really want to go forward with that position, I'm going to put a piece of paper in front of you that you're going to sign your name to that attests that following what you're proposing, uh, we will follow what you propose and you attest that the crew will come home alive. Yeah. So if you're screwing around with basic physics and just playing mind games with someone, you know, that's a red line that almost anybody, we, I don't want to be the guy that killed people because I was having a, an argument with Trevor. Um, and the other thing is, as we practiced and simulated and trained, instructors would throw things into the computer to you know, mess you up. Something would break, something would fail. The plan you were trying to do, the checklist you were trying to would never work the way you intended. And they wanted to push both the astronauts and the flight control team you know, to think all the way through everything they knew and dig even deeper uh, and, you know, learn more and learn how to communicate effectively together. And if something hit in your area and you kind of muffed it, you made a bad call, uh, we would debrief that mm-hmm. very unblinkingly afterwards. And the, the expectation was that you who had muffed it would lead the narrative about what happened and what you missed you know, what mental error you made or what piece of data you missed and why you made that call and in retrospect, what you would do now. And so you couldn't duck. Um, You really couldn't duck what actually happened here and what role did I play in it and what could I have done better? And by the way, your colleagues around would always step up as well and say, well, okay, I could have helped Trevor better too, because I kind of saw that and thought that, but I didn't yeah. I didn't say anything about it and I should have. So everyone was putting themselves on record of I could have and should have made a better contribution to this working properly. Uh, and in the case of the, the story I told the vice president, I mean, that was just black and white. That was inarguable. That was a question of what infrastructure exists in Chad in Africa compared to Silicon Valley in California. There are other circumstances where you may be sure something's not going to work, but it's very, very complex. And maybe it's a mix of physics and finances and other things. And am I so certain that I will go to the mat on this thing? Um, those are the toughest ones. You hope, and ideally, in my mind, ideally, you've got a working environment where you can make your case as strongly as you can and still say, I may not have everything straight here, but you know, I'm, I'm really worried about this. And, and people will not just jump on you and say, if you can't prove it, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, they'll actually engage in the point you're raising and test it with you and examine it with you so we can all make the best decision instead of we picked my, we picked my approach instead of Trevor's. So I, I won that point. That's, a, again, great explanation of, of an, a, a high accountability environment, but a really supportive accountability environment, more, more team-based than, yeah. 
you know, if you read the memoirs of people who were flight directors, you know, all men in my era, um, that that was the climate. In fact, one of my pod, one of my podcast guests recently has been Jerry Griffin, who was really the the influential flight director on Apollo thirteen. Mm-hmm. Not the guy you saw in the movie where they centered everything on Gene Kranz. Uh, that that was also a team of people working in shifts, not one guy. Right. Uh, but Jerry speaks very uh, eloquently about this continually challenging ourselves to be sure we have the best right idea, not just pick yours or pick mine. What's the best right idea here? And really quite selflessly going with the best right idea because of the importance of what you were doing. Sounds like wire brushing the idea rather than wire brushing the person. That's that's exactly the point. And that's the shift I tried to make as I led Noah. We have a problem. Right. We're going to all attack and dissect the problem. I'm, you raise the problem to the group. I'm not attacking you. And you might float a suggestion that doesn't hold water. We're not attacking or demeaning you. We're testing the proposition so yep. we can get the best right answer. Yep. No, that's great. Well, Kathy, as we pull this really interesting conversation to close, I have two more sort of aspirational, broader questions. And the, the first is, what, what drives you to serve? You've been in lots of leadership roles where you're in charge, so to speak, but fundamentally, you're a servant. And, and that comes at great consequence. Um, it, it, it costs people all sorts of things, whether it's remuneration or time with family and friends, all those things. What, what drives you to serve? You know, I'm, I am motivated by purpose. Uh, I'm motivated by a, a purpose that can, in my judgment, you know, make a difference to, for me, our, our planet and the ability of people to live wisely and well on this planet. So the purpose of understanding this planet and how it works, the purpose of helping other people appreciate that, the purpose of providing them information that can help them make better decisions, whether those are business decisions or little league decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, the purpose of helping younger people uh, find the joy in learning and find you know, agency, find all that it gives to them to become a capable uh, and even eager learner and, and maintain wide curiosity. So let's, you mentioned young people, let's finish with that. Let's teleport yourself back to your 26-year-old self entering uh, NASA and thinking about, um, you've spent some time in the Glenn College. You know, we have young people at various stages of their intellectual and personal growth. What, what advice would, would you have for them as they venture out of school and, in, and into the world? Um, so what, what guidance would you give them as they enter the world of public service? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, resolve first and foremost that you're going to be a perpetual learner, not just an executor or performer of work. Um, continually expand your radius to topics, to people, to communities, to places you don't know. You know, if any of us, if we keep too tight a radius around us, like-minded friends, you know, like experience people. Uh, you know, you're wallowing in a pretty stagnant pool. And we all, we all know what gets bred in stagnant water, right? <laughs> bad, bad vectors. <laughs> so, uh, Mark. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think if you, if you stuck on those two things, 
if you looked at every day that you're going to your job, not just as an obligation to get the work done, but an opportunity to learn something new yeah. about a topic, about another person, about how some other part of your organization works. Uh, I think I think you find a couple things there. One is you are actually learning, but two is it, it always would shift my mindset from a day I have to go do for others or go do to survive to this is this is the day where I get something. Mm -hmm. This is the day where I come home with something new, something richer, something I've learned. Uh, and the other thing I would say is, you know, you're. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to, things are going to get messy. That that's the way of life, not a reflection on you. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, don't take a mistake or a setback as a moment that's catalyzing new growth, not as a verdict. Well, you are, you are the model public servant, but you're also the model of those two um, admonitions to, to people, your, your career and the way you've conducted yourself or that you, you, you walk the talk. So thank, thank you for the service and, and in this context, thanks for, for really um, sharing with us um, uh, over the years of your experiences, all the, the great lessons. So thanks for the conversation. My pleasure, Trevor. <laughs>